This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Elegiac and atmospheric, dark and disquieting, are all adjectives that have been used to describe Sheila Armstrong's writing. Her debut novel, Falling Animals, was inspired by a real-life mystery, and like the sea off the coast of her native Northwest Ireland, the tale it tells is alive with undercurrents. Each chapter focuses on a different character caught up in the wake of the appearance of an unidentified man's body on a remote Irish beach. It's a haunting tale which, like Sheila's short stories, is rich with the landscape and thwarted dreams of a community living on the storm-tossed edge of the world. The audiobook version is beautifully narrated by Aoife McMahon, who was a guest on the show a few weeks ago. First, there is a seal with no eyes. It is a spring tide. The beach is shrinking to a silvery half-moon and the sheets of rock above the tide line are turning black with the unfamiliar spray. Out over the deep water, the dawn light is stretched out and thin. Only the iron tip of a shipwreck is visible above the waves. Further out, the tent pole of a lighthouse props up the sky, and from there, the horizon curves into a horseshoe all the way around the world and back to the dark anchor of the eyeless seal. A white van is making its way down the narrow, green-spined road to the deserted beach. In the soft, unsteady sand, each turn the driver makes must be a slow and careful adjustment, as the shifting forest of dunes is precarious at the best of times. Harsh winters have lashed chunks out of them, and each day the shoreline morphs and changes further. A recent summer storm has left debris above the tide line. The delicate shells of sea urchins and clumps of orange-brown seaweed as thick as matted hair. The driver left with the early August dawn to get to the beach before the first walkers appeared. He drives cautiously, a few wheel-spinning moments in the dunes had set his heart pounding. There will be a man with a tractor to pull him out if he gets stuck. There is always a man with a tractor around, collecting oysters from the half-submerged traps. But Frank is booked in for a drop-off at the incinerator before lunch, and a delay would mean more paperwork. He tries to park as close to the carcass as he can. Through the windscreen, the seal looks so pristine it might have just pulled itself out of the ocean to rest, propped up in an alert position, empty eye sockets staring blankly out to sea. Sheila Armstrong, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you so much for having me. Falling Animals is inspired by a real event which hit the headlines back in 2009. Could you just give us a bit of background and how it inspired you to write a fictional account? Of course. So I, I was born and grew up in a small seaside village in the west of Ireland. And about 15 years ago at this stage, one morning, a man was found uh, dead on a remote beach. Nobody knew who he was, how he died or even how he got there. Um, the investigation is still ongoing. There was there was some really, really strange circumstances surrounding his death. He was caught on CCTV in the days before he passed away, acting quite strangely, getting rid of his belongings. He signed into a hotel under a false name. He gave a false address. It was obvious that he didn't want to be recognised, didn't want to be identified by either police or his family. Um, his cause of death was also quite strange. They weren't sure at first if he had drowned or not, because, of course, he was he was found on the beach. But his, his clothes were dry. His um, He had cut the labels off his clothes. 
and he had uh, they were all a, a set of brand new clothes as well so it was quite hard to to figure out where they had come from um eventually the pathologist found out that he had died of a cardiac arrest which was linked to a terminal case of cancer so it was clear that this man had had chosen this beach in the west of ireland for his last moments Nobody is quite sure why he chose this area, whether it was by chance he just picked a point in the map and chose it, or if there was some reason he decided to go to this particular place. So this this all happened in the village where I grew up. And when it came to looking for inspiration for a novel, uh, I had this amazing story really, really close to hand. I wasn't actually around when it happened in the first place. I was off in college, but I was able to speak to a lot of people who were either witnesses or remembered the events or were involved in some ways. So the story I wrote begins in the same place. It begins with a body on a beach, unidentified, no obvious cause of death, but it begins to spiral outwards from that. Uh, I wasn't particularly interested in, in solving the mystery of this man's death. I felt that he had, he had chosen to end his life in this mm. way. And for me to, to d- delve too deeply into his reasons wouldn't, wouldn't really be fair to him. So instead, I, I wanted to look at the, the voices of the community surrounding him, the people who were affected by his death. And by doing that, paint a picture of the, the community and all these lives that were touched by this one person's passing through them. Well, as you say, a gold dust to a novelist's mind. And um, each chapter takes a separate character who is both named and also identified by their position within the community or what they do, and rather focuses a telescope on them and follows them, and we learn their backstory, and each of them unwittingly, in many cases, has a small piece of the jigsaw as to who this man could be. He's both a a presence and an absence, I suppose, in the story. That's a great way of describing it. And that's rather reflected in, well, the only clues the authorities have to his identity is that he's got a missing ring finger, an absence, and the wedding ring that used to be on that finger in his pocket, which I suppose is a presence. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And, And I wanted to leave these slight clues along the way um, as to what, what, what might have his backstory might have been. The investigation itself well, included a lot of red herrings and, and different paths that, that the, the, the police went down. I had great fun going online to message boards where amateur detectives spend hours and hours of their time trying to figure out mysteries like this. So there was some absolutely amazing theories on, on, on who this man could have been. Um, and I, I, I took, actually took some of them and included them in the book as the, the, the police officer is trying to figure out who he could have come from. He has all these people ringing in to suggest all these, these mad possibilities, and he gets so frustrated with the, with, with the mystery of it all, which is fairly true to life, I think. That it's, it's not always that we get nice little clues that always link perfectly back together and give us a straight answer. No, I suppose that's why we enjoy detective fiction, because generally it wraps it all up with a bow at the end of the story mm-hmm. for us. But actually life is far more exactly, messy. Exactly, exactly. And it, it, it reflects the truth as well, because this man is still, is still un, unidentified all these years later. Now, initially we get to see the community that he has turned up in through the eyes of the witness, or Una, who is, who's in her 70s. She has been a constant presence within the seaside village throughout her life but she's also invisible to the younger generation and to the visitors who flock to this little village clinging to the top of the cliffs battered by Atlantic storms and as you said this this community is supposed to be grateful for the influx of tourists who flock to it like I think the expression you use rats to a bar. <laughs> Not the most complimentary, no. <laughs> but I think that does reflect the, the attitudes of a lot of a lot of the older generation and a lot of y- younger generation as well. Um, tourists are both 
you know they provide they provide they help the the local economy but they're also um an intrusion in a lot of ways so it's it's kind of both a love-hate relationship yeah and it's a very isolated place you know people need a reason to come there either on holiday or as in the case of some of the other characters such as Leela the cook or Matthias the barman They've almost come for shelter. It's a seaside town. It's a form of port. And it's almost as if they've sort of tucked themselves into the port to to shelter from life or, well, grief is one of the big emotions that runs through this book. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to get the sense of um, flotsam and jetsam, almost people being cast up on the shores unintentionally. Um, they, they all, as you say, they all are sheltering from something they're running from something but they've decided to stop in this in this small place and they're they're people from all around the world and they've decided to make this place their home so where, whereas you say yes of course it is a, a place that is battered by storms and miserable as so much of the west coast of ireland is it's also a really beautiful place and there is such a strong sense of community and almost once you're in you're in You'll always be a blow-in, of course, even if you've been living there mm. for, for, for 20 years, you'll be a blow-in. But, but there's, there's a real sense of, of the interconnectedness of people. Well, I rather loved the inversion because we are so used to hearing stories of emigration from the west coast of Ireland that actually to focus on characters who have immigrated there from, as you say, all over the world and a man who seems to have chosen to come there to die mm. well it made me think of the the village as a safe haven yeah yeah i really i really like that idea of um it, it's offering something to these people that they they were that was missing in their in their lives whether that's um stability a job uh, a relationship or even just just a sense of purpose and you're right, there's so many narratives of emigration, especially especially uh, Irish people emigrating, that I quite like the idea of, of allowing people in, of, of reflecting a community that is opening and is improved by the presence of, of all these different types of people. One character who really represents that is the son, Mitchell, who has come back from the States to care for his mother, Rhea, who is dying of MS. She's an artist. And in their rather stormy relationship, you reflect that very difficult position that families who are dealing with a degenerative disease experience. The love for the family member, the hatred for the disease, that maelstrom of differing emotions that mean that anybody involved is living on an emotional edge, a storm-tossed edge in many ways. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good way of, of putting it. There's, I suppose there's the two sides. There's the, the person themselves, Rhea, who is the artist who is, is suffering from this degenerative illness. And as an artist, obviously, the use of her, her hands are, is so important and, and precision when she's, when she's painting. Um, that the loss of that is is a massive thing to, for her to deal with, and she still hasn't really come to terms with it. And then she has her son, who is was in many ways estranged when she when she left. She came to she left America and came to this small town and left her son behind in the states. And as an adult, he has decided to to come and spend some time with her to get to know her. And he is also realizing that this illness is taking his mother from him, and it's also coming down to him to 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 look after her and he's he's coming to terms of what his future might look like she obviously doesn't want him to be to to spend his life looking after her but he has so much care and love for his mother even though in some ways he doesn't know her very well and I really wanted to show the strength of that relationship not necessarily even as a mother and son relationship but as as two people who really care about each other and are are getting to know each other all over again and supporting each other and both and from from both ends now, as we've said, Rhea is an artist, and one of the things she tells her students to do is to paint a silhouetted character in the background of their drawings so that the viewer can see themselves in the picture. And in many ways, I, th I think that 
rather informs the way that you write. The, the man who appears on the beach is a silhouette himself, and, and we're questioning why he's there. He's got no real form. And we're invited to see ourselves in his predicament, but also in the predicament of the other characters that you're focusing on throughout the book. It's not always sharp focus. We're invited to feel empathy with the fuzzy edges around them, if you like. Yeah, I, I, I like that idea of of a silhouette in the, in the background of a painting because we're all a character in somebody else's stories in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, that's why I decided to choose to, to name the titles after the role that each character plays in this story. They're all a part of the puzzle. They're all contributing something even if they're not sure what that is it's also about perspective um i know if i was asked to recount an encounter that i had even last week with somebody who maybe passed me by or i i shook their hand i would probably remember very few details but it's this 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 investigation has led people to to look back on their memories and wonder what am I remembering? Is is memory actually reliable? Can I trust that? Um, so so yeah, it's that that sense of perspective of being part of something that's so much bigger. Yeah, and realizing that all characters, all of us, are like the body on the beach, somewhat unknowable. You can focus as hard as you want, but there are always going to be aspects of people's character that that we don't know or we don't understand. Exactly. And in the in the book, the characters cross over into each other, each other's chapters. So you might see one of them cropping up at the beginning and then they'll come around and they'll have a chapter at the very end. So you, you see how they slot in. Um, I, I think of that saying what people say that everybody is the main character in their own story. We're all supporting characters in each other's story. But to us, our, our, our point of view, our experience is the centre of the universe, even though it's part of something so much bigger. And that tension between what is unknowable and, and our quest, our natural human quest for answers, is a tension that lies at the heart of the book. A lot of the characters, particularly the Doctor, who is somebody who just has to have answers for everything, are, are rather haunted by the fact that they, they can't find the answer to this man's identity and they can't find the answer to their relationship with their daughter. And actually, the harder the doctor works on her relationship the more she pushes the daughter away yes i i especially like the doctor because she has a very being a medical professional she's a very fact-based approach to life and sees each case that she's presented with as a puzzle that has an obvious answer she does not do well with not knowing the answers to things um and the her relationship with her daughter is not something that can be quantified and, and easily broken down into A plus B equals C. Her daughter is very emotional and leads with her heart, whereas her mother leads with her head. And mm. the arc of their relationship is, is trying to come to terms with each other and understand each other for who they are rather than who they would like each other to be. And that frustration at not finding a tidy solution is, I think, in some ways embodied by the character of the widow who says that she longs to close the coffin on her heart, which is a terribly poignant thing to say. And, and, and in her quest to do that, she'll try and find closure in anyone's story, whether it's hers or not. Yes, that, that's a really lovely way of putting it. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but yes, there is. There is um, in any real investigation, there are people who are going to insert themselves for whatever reasons they have of their own. And whether those reasons are malicious or not, it can still disturb the trajectory of an investigation. Um, this particular woman is obviously incredibly lost, wants to close the coffin in her heart and has taken this situation as a way to, to possibly do that. It causes huge frustration to those who are actually investigating it because it turns out to be a false trail. But at the same time, it just adds to... And hers is another life that has been affected by this mm. passing, even if, if it's by her inserting herself into the story. The book is haunted by 
ghosts of the departed. And there's this sense that grief can take you like an undertow in the sea. And, and the sea is a major character in the book. And people, in many ways, define themselves by their relationship with the sea. They're either embattled by it, or they earn their livings from it, or they have travelled on it to the community they now live in. Yeah, that, that's a really lovely way of putting it. I, I grew up in a seaside village and I spent a lot of the time, a lot of my childhood and adulthood in and on the water, in and out of boats and, and swimming. And there's a real sense that the sea both provides and takes away. Mm. I think people who spend time in and around the sea have a much healthier regard for how powerful and how dangerous the sea can be. In this particular village, there used to be a, a thriving fishing industry. But now that uh, the, the global economy has changed so much, that that has, has dried up as well. There's also that, that sense of the ocean providing comes in again towards the end where there's a character who is involved in an argument over fishing rights in the North Sea. And there's questions of, of overfishing and almost taking advantage of the sea and not giving anything back and the dangers that that can cause. Um, sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. I have just been sailing. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I spent the last few days sailing. <laughs> <laughs> All at sea. Well, yes, and, and, and actually another ghost that haunts the community is the wreck of the frigate, which is beached on a sandbar just offshore and it reappears with every falling tide and and you also use it and its background story to explore international sea trade and one of those sort of oh my god moments of the book is when we find Leela the cook cooking locally caught cod fillets that have been sent to China for processing and now have come back to the west coast of Ireland to be cooked. And and you're not afraid of actually confronting these bizarre products of our 21st century lives. That fact about fish being sent off to be processed in China and then returned is true, actually. And so many of the facts that I discovered when I was researching this book were like that, were, oh my God, what what... There's an entire hidden system that powers our world. And it's these container ships that go crisscross the globe and bring us everything that we accept as almost our due in, in modern life. We expect to have raspberries in the dead of winter, despite the fact that they, they're grown on the other side of the world. And we don't really think of the consequences of this. I, th I remember, I think it was... 2020 it was during the pandemic and pandemic time is incredibly malleable but mm -hmm. uh, a, sh a container ship was stuck in uh, the Suez Canal in Egypt and it became this great news story and everybody was laughing about it trying to do a three-point turn but the effect of it was to to block off trade it's one of the busiest the busiest shipping channels in the world and once there was this small barrier in place the the, the ramifications the effects the knock-on effects were were massive and there's also the people involved. Mm. These people are really often completely invisible. I've included a seaman who works on this ship as one of the characters. And he is, yeah, he is completely invisible. He is badly treated by his captain. He is badly treated by the entire industry. And yet without him and, and workers like him, our, our modern lives would be incredibly different. Absolutely. And one of my favourite characters in the book is the guard, the policeman, who, who is set to investigate this very strange case. But because of his many years of service, he realises that not every question has an answer. And that actually sometimes the best thing to do is just to step back and accept that there are more strange things in the world than will ever be explained. And yet... He is the one who, and as as we say, we, we don't want to give any spoilers, he is the one who actually could have solved the mystery. 
that's exactly right. He has he has all the clues in his hands. He um he almost gets there but doesn't quite make it. As a as a policeman, of course, he's he's incredibly jaded by the work mm. he does, as I'd imagine any any police officer would be. But that idea of acceptance that yes, there are strange things in this world, and we just have to accept their unknowability, that feeds into the title. Um I'm obsessed with with strange natural phenomena, weird things that happen in the natural world that seem ridiculous and uh, invented, but are actually true. And one of them is these rains of animals that that happen every now and then when fish or uh, jellyfish or even spiders, birds, all sorts of things, frogs even fall down from the sky. Scientists think that possibly they're being taken up in water spouts but they're not sure. And the idea that we can not know something in the 21st century with all our modern scientific knowledge is incredible to me. I, I love that. I love that there are still corners of the world and things that we will, will never fully understand. And that's definitely something that you explore in your short story collection, How to Gut a Fish, which we'll discuss after the break. But before we move on to that, can I just ask you to describe the cover of Falling Animals for a visually impaired audience? Because it really does link into the book itself. Yes, of course. And the beautiful thing about the cover is that it's already described in the story. It's actually a reflection of the painting that Rhea, the artist, produces that ends up being quite a big part of this puzzle. She is haunted by this image of a ship on fire something that she saw many years ago when she first arrived in this small community. And she gathered with the other residents of the village and looked out over the cliff at this ship on fire. And it's something that she has taken with her that's kind of smoldered inside of her. And as she is coming to terms with this, this difficult diagnosis of MS, she finds herself driven to paint it, to, to get it out on the, on the canvas, this image of this ship burning. So what my publishers, Bloomsbury, have done, have taken this image and they've, they've recreated it on the cover. So it's this ship in a swirling sea that is almost, it almost looks like it's been painted with, with brushstrokes. For me, it's, it's the perfect possible cover because it includes the sea, the ship, and also Rhea's own interpretation of it. Well, even without falling for the cover, I must say I gobbled up falling animals and it certainly is one of the most moving and thought-provoking books that i have read in the last five years and it had a pretty hard act to follow because i also loved your short story collection how to gut a fish which we will discuss after the break your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books where this week I'm in conversation with the Irish writer Sheila Armstrong. Sheila, just before the break, I mentioned your short story collection, How to Gut a Fish, which has been described as a disquieting collection of stories that places the bizarre beside the everyday and then elegantly blurs the lines, which I think really actually probably <laughs> encapsulated. As you say, you love this kind of edgelands of our perception where the ancient and spiritual world around us meshes with our 21st century lives and I wonder if that's something that comes from the fact that Ireland is very much steeped in its own spirituality certainly where you grew up is surrounded by ancient burial sites and standing stones and fairy rings and so on and so forth. Yeah, definitely. I think Irish folklore is incredibly rich. Every inch of the land has a story behind it. Mm. 
and the stories have made up such a huge part of, of who we are as a people and we're, we're a nation of storytellers. We tell each other these stories over and over again and they might, they might change as we get older. One of my favourite stories was growing up nearby, there was a haunted house and my uncle told us that it was haunted because a lawnmower had once been seen running by itself. <laughs> and that is an absolutely ridiculous haunting that's really bizarre. But the really interesting thing about it is I went looking recently. In the 1950s, there was a project done where school children would talk to their grandparents and ask them to tell them a story or a piece of folklore about the area that they live in. And this has all been digitized and put up online. And it's a really, really fascinating archive because it's children in the 1950s speaking to the generation before who obviously had incredibly difficult lives and their stories have carried with them. And the particular story about the haunted house that my uncle had told me is reflected in one of these stories. But that story talks about how a threshing machine was seen running without any horses. So while the story of the haunting has stayed the same, it's changed from a threshing machine with no horses to a lawnmower with no person, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> a lot of the stories in How to Go to Fish, as the title probably implies, revolve around the natural world and the strangeness of things that are, are out there. Um, each of the stories started with a spark, something like that, something that I looked out and saw and struck me and filed away in my mental filing cabinet. And it wasn't, it might, it might've taken years until I came back to it, but there was, I, I would go looking for, for something and there would be this, this strangeness, this strange image that some part of my brain had stored away unconsciously. And that was what would expand outwards to make the story. And it's something that you really capture in, in the opening story of the collection whole, where a fairy ring opens up in the middle of the night and seems to draw local people towards it. And only the badger, only the, the, the really natural animal, is wary That's of it. Good sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when I was putting the collection together, there's an art to it, I think. It's, it's, not, it's not just you throw everything you've ever written into, into a manuscript and, and call it a collection. There's a, there's a shaping. There's the same kind of narrative art that you'd want in a book of, of longer form fiction. You want a sense of a, a climax and a beginning and an end. And I knew what my ending story would be. It, it's a story where at the very end, there's kind of an opening out into the universe. Mm. So I decided for the first story, I wanted the opposite of that. I wanted something that would draw the reader in and introduce them to this strange universe that they would be inhabiting for the rest of the book. I'm quite literal minded. So that came out as a story about a sinkhole that literally drew people in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that sense of a portal between two worlds is also central to the story Haptic, where the, the modern creation of this, a virtual reality headset, is given as a gift to the birthday boy. And yet one of the other characters, somebody who has come from us overseas, realises that actually that just reflects her life. She is living in a virtual reality, in a different reality from the one that she was brought up in. Exactly. That story features a collection of young people who are together and they're at a birthday party. They have decided to give gift the birthday boy this Vior headset, which is an incredibly expensive piece of tech. And it's almost in place of actually making any human connection with each other. They just... They are all have good jobs. They're working in a in a good industry, and they decide on on this expensive gift as a an appropriate representation of their of their relationships. They end up using it to explore different planets, which is a real thing. Um, you can NASA have used the data from the Mars rovers to create this recreation of the Martian landscape. So it's possible to put on a headset boot up this program and you feel and you hear that you are on Mars. It's, it's a really bizarre sensation. Um, throughout that story, which is called haptic, which is a word for the technologies that are used to experience the digital world in, in different ways. And all these people are trying to use technology almost as a replacement for human connection. Throughout the story, they never actually physically touch each other. 
which is <laughs> even though the word haptic is is about touch it's about feel mm. it's about connecting each other but they they can't quite bridge that gap yes and there's that very revealing line about the character andrea in that story who sits in booths in cafes and gathers other people's heartaches like collectibles she's living a a half emotional life she's not indulging fully by experiencing those emotions herself she's getting them second hand yes exactly and as we saw with falling animals you also are not afraid of tackling live issues such as people trafficking in red market and the 2018 irish referendum on abortion rights yeah so that story lemons is quite an emotional one. I actually wrote it around the time of the repeal the 8th campaign. The 8th was a piece of legislation that gave um, an unborn child and a mother equal weight in 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 value. Um, it was an incredibly difficult and limiting piece of legislation that affected uh, hundreds and thousands of lives. Um, and we it was uh, after a really, really strong campaign was was repealed in 2018. That story came out of this sense that there was almost this shared trauma in the air. Every mm. single woman you would speak to would would have their own story and strangers felt pushed to share them with each other. You'd meet somebody while you were leafleting and they would have the most harrowing story of how their lives had been had been damaged by this by this damaging piece of, of, of law, and yet you might never see them again. So the, the entire air felt weighted with this, with this shared sense of, of, of emotion. That story follows one woman from uh, early childhood up until not quite her death, but the end of her life. And it is very visceral. It's about mm. being in a body and, and feeling a body and the stages, the markers of, of a woman's life that, 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 a, that a person might go through. And always a lurking menace in the background, be it a creepy next-door neighbour or breast cancer. It's, it's the ignominies that can be visited on a woman during her life. Yeah, it's, it's a very much a story of the body, and I tend to write a lot from the body. I write about feelings and visceral senses and how living in a body, in a body in the world is, is how we experience mm -hmm. the rest of the universe. Now, another very visceral story, which actually had me thinking of James Joyce in, in the way it was presented and very poetic, very in-your-face, immediate style, is Mantis. And your chosen narrator... Aoife McMahon, who was a guest on this show a few weeks ago, clearly absolutely relished reading that. It's, it's like a piece of performance poetry, and it's hard-hitting. She improved that story no end through her performance. It's, it's an incredible performance. It's quite different to the style of the other stories. Mm. It came about one morning I was walking through Dublin City early in the morning at about 8 o'clock on my way to a class, and a man as he was walking past me, his arms suddenly came up and he punched me in the shoulder really, really hard and then just kept walking as if nothing had happened. And I, I stopped in the street and I was looking after him. I was, I was too surprised to, to do anything more except rub my shoulder. And then think, <laughs> Ow. But this, the idea of this, this, this person walking around at eight o'clock in the morning on a bright summer's day with so much violence and anger in them what was that person going home to? Mm. And that's what that's where that story came about. And then through the language in that story, I tried to replicate the sense of of racing thoughts, of of things colliding, of not having control over ourselves. And and our our thoughts are very rarely linear. They come from all angles at once. And that story was a was an attempt to to replicate that and to imagine what that 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 particular person was was going through in their everyday lives. There's an overwhelming beauty in these stories which doesn't belie, but actually I think in some way enhances the shock of the sometimes brutal, sometimes very unpleasant things that, that are going on in the background. And certainly Irish writing is 
experiencing a bit of a golden age at the moment, what with you and Sally Rooney and Claire Keegan, uh, amongst many others. Is there a sense of a trauma still being worked through, do you think, in Irish writing? Is this why we've got such a rich crop of writers who are really digging into the human psyche and going, what have we suffered? What has it made us? And how do we deal with it? Yeah, I think the shape and form of that trauma is different for every writer. Claire Keegan writes a lot about uh, childhood and small things like these, which I think is going to be adapted next year, is about the Magdalene Laundry. So it's set in the, the 80s, I think. And yes, her her work definitely deals deals with that, the trauma of, of that and, and the dark cloud of those experiences that, that still hang over so many people. And then there's the younger generation that are coming up and they're they're writing their own way through things. They're they're dealing with growing up as a young person in a post-crash economy, in a space where aimlessness seems to be the order of the day, where there's no there's no obvious future and it's 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 difficult to grapple with that. Mm-hmm. It's really exciting um to be part of this. I think what we Irish writers do very, very well is the short story. I think it's it's always been part of our part of our oral storytelling tradition and we place such value on it there's in Ireland there's there's so many uh, magazines and competitions and organizations just in place to support the short story Mm. and a lot of writers I think or even readers might see short stories as a stopping off on the way to a novel whereas we respect them for what they are we give them their due we we let them stand as as they are. And I think Claire Keegan's popularity is is really interesting in that sense because she's she's not afraid to write a short story. And mm. yes, and I but I think I think modern audiences like that. I think it would be too glib to to reference um our attention shortening attention spans. <laughs> but I think <laughs> I think a short story is the right amount of depth and meat to it to sit with something for, for 20 minutes to half an hour and to to take that time and, and, and really digest it. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and I think often short stories can be a little bit more open-ended than a novel. Um, and they, they stay with you for longer. Yes, that's, that's one of the reasons why I love short stories so much, mm. that there is almost more work for the reader to do. They don't expect the writer doesn't expect and the reader doesn't want their hand to be held through the story. It's not the same as a novel, but in miniature. It's its own form. It's its own it's its own art. And that art is often obtuse and annoying. And you feel like you have to read it 10 times to understand. But it's it's a much more active process. It's a much more active type of reader. Which begs the question, what are you working on as your next book? So I am working on a novel. I think I the way I write tends to lend itself to quite fragmentary experiences. The novel is written from 18 points of view, and then they're all brought together to create this overarching narrative. And I think that's the way I like to write. I like to go in deep for a short period of time and then come up for breath and go in deep to somewhere else. So the novel will probably take a similar form. We'll might throw a few short stories in as uh, just, just, just for myself before I, <laughs> as I, as I'm working on it, just as a little treat. <laughs> so you're not resting on your laurels then? <laughs> no, definitely. You always have to keep going, keep going. <laughs> You've been incredibly fortunate to, land Aoife McMahon as the narrator for for both your books so far. Are you a big fan of audiobooks yourself? And and did you know her work as a narrator beforehand? I'm a really big fan of audiobooks. I really love the power and flavour that a reader can give to a book. I think it it can go both ways, though. Sometimes there's a reader whose voice is is quite off-putting and you just can't quite you can't quite engage with it and it can be a bit distracting. Aoife, I think, is absolutely perfect for the way I write, 
which is slightly slightly distant, slightly detached, as if you're looking over the character's shoulder as opposed to being in the, in their head. There's also, with the way I write, is very little dialogue. The power is in the descriptions and, and memories. And the way Aoife reads lets the reader, the listener, take that position as well. So Aoife was suggested to me as an option for my first book. And once I, once I heard her readings, I fell in love with her. When this, it came time for the second book, I requested her again just because I thought she had, she had done such an incredible job. It's such a it's such a gift to have somebody reading your work like that. Mm. In some ways, the first time I turned on the audiobook to listen to it, I had to turn it off again. It's a really strange feeling. It can be quite uncomfortable. It's almost like a, a teacher is reading your homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I listened to it again, I realized, wow, this reading is is imparting so much nuance and humor and little details that I might not have intended that Aoife and, and audio, a really good audio reader can, can pull out of the text. Yeah, her sense of enjoyment is, is clearly there, but also her sense of utter immersion. And certainly that's something that came through when I was interviewing her. She enjoys reading great literature. <laughs> so I'm guessing that you too enjoy reading great literature and now it's time to find out about the books that have resonated with you with the books of your life so was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author when i was a child my mother used to have to take books off me as punishment <laughs> <laughs> i was constantly reading i would read anything i could get my hands on I even for a while tried to perfect a technique of reading in the shower, which um, didn't work <laughs> out too well for my for my books. <laughs> Pulp fiction. The books, <laughs> <laughs> the books that really have stuck with me from childhood into adulthood is uh, the books of Terry Pratchett. Oh, yeah. I read mostly fantasy when I was a child and as a young adult. When I When I started to write myself, I never really thought that I would be a fantasy writer, but as I went along, it, these elements started to to seep in. Just the the use of the bizarre and the strange to underline the, what is real and true in our world. And for me, that definitely started with the with the Discworld books. The way that Pratchett has such a love for language and playfulness, but also there's so much wisdom in there. They teach us how to understand our world better, even though there's werewolves and and all sorts of of magical creatures Pratchett was my first sense that literature can be used to understand other people and it sometimes it's a it's a passive experience but something I've heard said before is that literature is an empathy machine mm. reading gives you such empathy it makes you curious about the world around you and I don't think any reader or anyone who wants to write can be uncurious about the world you need that that drive to to understand other people to wonder what is what makes them tick what makes what makes their worlds look the way it does and is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread so we spoke about this a little bit i think but rereading rereading short stories is something i love to do because there is often so many different meanings every time you read it you take something new away with you and even though emotion can can completely change, sometimes you read something and you come away with, oh, yes, um, that, that, that's given me a kind of a lift. And then you read it again and you realize, oh, God, there's something so much darker going on in there. So what I would love to do on, on rainy days is to, to curl up with, with a book of short stories or an anthology. I really love going back through the archives of The New Yorker and The Paris Review, which have an amazing trove of short stories available. Also, there's so many literary magazines in Ireland, like mm. Stinging Fly and, and Banshee and the Dublin Review that, that produce really, really excellent short stories on a, on a regular basis. And they're also the perfect length for, for a rainy day. You know, you'll get, through, you'll get through them quite quickly. Or you can put it down when the sun comes out. Yes. yes. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? So there was two books that I read recently that really, really had an impact on me. They're both by young Irish writers, both male, both 
their debut novels. They're similar in a lot of ways, but they're also quite different. Close to Home by Michael McGee is set in working class Belfast, and it's about a young man who is in his 20s, is trying to figure out what to do with his life, growing up in the obviously historically and politically charged background of, of Belfast. The other book I have really enjoyed is by Nolo Regan. It's called Though the Bodies Fall. It's a similar examination of a young man and masculinity, but it is set at the opposite end of the country down in Kerry in an extremely rural part of the world. And it's an amazing exploration of, of, of place and what place does and how, how it shapes us in, in different ways. So those two books, which are quite similar in some ways, but inhabit completely different landscapes are two that I've really enjoyed recently. So that's Close to Home by Michael McGee and Though the Bodies Fall by Noel O'Regan. Well, those sound like two fantastic recommendations. Sheila Armstrong, thank you so much for being a guest on My Life in Books today. And I can't wait to meet the 18 characters of your next novel. <laughs> I might have to increase it, maybe double it, double it up. The more, the merrier. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. It's time to turn the page on this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Sheila Armstrong, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. I'm Margaret Shepherd of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.